All right, good morning. Beautiful morning indeed. Just to put it out there, yes, I did get some sun yesterday, okay? <laughs> this is what happens when Doug sits in the sun a little too long. So get that out of the way. I don't want to be a distraction to you this morning, all right? Um, yeah, typically if I show up and I'm red, that's just what that means. So you don't even have to ask. Just assume I was in the sun yesterday. All right, just a little wound there. Keep surfacing. So this, ser- uh, this week we get to introduce a new series, and this is um, it's my joy to be able to do that. Um, we spent the last couple of weeks looking at some of the events, historical events that took place surrounding the cross, the resurrection, um, as we kind of walk through the Easter season. And so um, this week we're going to launch a series that's going to take us in and through most of the summer. Um, we'll see where it goes. My hope, my prayer is that we might be able to extend it a little bit longer, but we'll see how that goes. Um, we're going we're gonna to be in a, a passage of scripture that's found in Matthew chapter 5. Um, so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open um, there. Just as a, a forewarning, I'm going to do this this week, perhaps for some weeks to come. I, I don't know, but there will be no verses on the slides, okay? If you don't have a Bible with you, um, there are a few Bibles back there. You can grab one. You can get up at any time and grab one if you want. Um, if you have your phone, you can pull that out and check it out, or maybe a neighbor next to you has it. But I, I, my hope... Um, for the next couple of weeks is to, to get us to be a people who, who knows our word, who knows our Bible, who appreciates the Bible. And I don't think there's anything wrong with putting words up on the screen, but I, I think there's something really beautiful about showing up to church on a Sunday with a Bible in your hand. I think there's something that's really beautiful. I mean, when I think about what we do here on Sunday mornings, um, that is the thing that, that we come here for. That's why we come here is, is this book. And so I want us to be people who, who love this book. Um, so no words on the screens today. Well, maybe next week I'll feel different. But bring your Bible if you have one. If you don't have one, they're on the table back there. Phone. There's no shame in the game. It's totally fine. So we're going to be in a series next couple of weeks throughout the summer where we're going to be looking specifically at Matthew chapter 5 in a, in, a, in a passage of Scripture that is referred to as the Beatitudes. Now, along with the Ten Commandments, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord's Prayer, there there are a few other sections in Scripture uh, that the Beatitudes kind of lines up with and are considered to be by many, regardless of their faith or their allegiance um, to a faith, um, are among the Beatitudes, are among these passages which are considered to be the highest expressions of religious insight and moral inspiration. There are many people, make, taking a number of philosophy classes here at the university, there are many people who, who will look, who will mine these words, the Beatitudes, these teachings of Jesus, um, and will say how beautiful they are. Whether or not they align their life up to them is another story, but through ages, through the ages, since these words have been uttered, they have gone down in history as some of the most beautiful, truthful words that have been spoken. And they're, they're beautiful, and so it's a joy to be able to do that. My prayer for us as we focus on this passage over the next couple of weeks is that we would do more than study them, that we would do more than meditate on the Beatitudes, but we would be people who are moved by the Beatitudes, moved into action. That we would examine our life and step back and think to ourselves, ask a question, based on these truths, how then shall we live? That's the question, ultimately. When we think about a practical application, asking ourselves that question every Sunday as we leave this building, that is the question we want to answer. 
based on what we just read, how then shall we live? That's the question. For some of us, this may mean we need to build our life in light of them. And for others of us, it may mean that we have an honest and a real evaluation of our lives as we have built them around them. So, you know, I was just reminded of, you know, this morning I, on my way here, I was driving downtown on Clinton Street. And um, across from the old Capitol Mall, there is a, there's a bill, I think it's a bank, Midwest One, maybe. I'm not sure what building is there. But there's a stretch, that, you know, that's a part of the building. And then there's a stretch where there's lots of big glasses and windows. And as I was driving, I saw a man jogging. It was early and there wasn't many people on the street. And he was jogging. And as, and as he approached, you know, running parallel with these windows... You know, I, I saw him coming, and he, he's jogging in a little odd fashion. He just had a weird kind of gait about him, so it kind of just caught my attention. Like, huh, that's, that's interesting. And so as he was jogging, I noticed he, he caught his reflection in the window as he went by, right? And as he was going, he, he, it was kind of humorous because he kept looking, like, you know, at, at himself as he, was, as he was jogging. You know, he thought he maybe looked better than I thought he looked. I don't know. But he was re reflecting, he was catching the reflection, the mirror, and he saw himself. And, and as he did that, thankfully, he slowed down a little bit. Maybe just to take it in, I don't know, but probably just to be safe, right? Because if you're running really fast and you're looking, you, bad things could happen, right? So, to me, it's a good picture of what I want us to do as we approach this text. This text, the Bible, really serves for us as a mirror, an opportunity for us to look into a mirror and to do some evaluation of how we live our lives. If we are Christians, how do, we, how do our lives line up with this book? It's an opportunity for us to evaluate our lives. And, and my, my request to you is, as we, and you'll see as we progress from one week to the next, that we will take our time. Like that man jogging by, we will slow down and we will look in the mirror. And we will slow down. Okay? This, is a, this is a part of scripture that if you speed up too fast, you may miss it. The truth is, as Jesus taught, there are many difficult things he said. Things that are difficult for many of us to hear. And, and our temptation can be to, to breeze right through those difficult, hard teachings of Jesus. And, and my request is simply that we slow down, we do some honest evaluation, and we see what the Lord would have for us. So if you have your Bibles again, we're going to be, actually we're going to start in Matthew 24, 23. I want to set the scene for us. I'm going to read in 423 and we'll, we'll finish up in 512. So this is the word of the Lord. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. <clears throat> and seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil falsely against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we come to this text now, a historically beautiful text, Father, I pray that that your, your spirit would be here, that it would guide us in your truth, and that your son would be exalted as a result, Father. I pray that you would give us the ability to evaluate our life and see how, how we live next to these glorious truths, Father. Um, we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Um, I want to take the opportunity this morning to essentially introduce a number of different things, uh, but this will be really the introduction for the entire series. So kind of what we're going to do is we're going to take one beatitude as, at a time. So really we, say we have eight beatitudes. The ninth one um, is really a, an extension of the eighth one. And so there's eight beatitudes. We'll go one at a time. And so as you can see, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are short verses and we're going to build an entire message and spend an entire week around one of them. So this morning, I'm just simply going to introduce the series um, I want to start first because I think our text really introduces us first. Before we get into the Beatitudes, um, we have to look at the life of Jesus. And so there's a few things that our text shows us. It's the reason why I started in chapter 4. Because I want us to see it in the context of how it was given. Um, and so in verse 23, what we have essentially is a summary of the life and the ministry of Jesus himself. And he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. If you were to fast forward throughout the, through the Sermon on the Mount, what you, would file, what you would find is that after the Sermon on the Mount, there is a number of healings and miracles that Jesus performs. And then we see another summary statement in chapter 9, verse 35, where it says, And Jesus went throughout the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease in every affliction. Both of these verses give us a summary of Jesus' ministry. Sandwiched in between them, we find our text for this morning. And really, when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, you can divide it into two different aspects. You think about what he did when he came to earth. There's, there's two primary things that he spent his ministry doing. And the first is, I mean, Luke says in, in 24, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word before God and all people. So really, Jesus' life, his ministry divided into two sections would be his teaching and his healing, his miracle working ministry. Those two ministries. Um, what can happen, I think historically has happened in the church is that it's a great error, which has been repeated throughout history, to accept one of these aspects of his ministry while rejecting the other. Some are quick to embrace the miracle worker, the compassionate physician, but not so quick to embrace the message he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus gave teachings about lusting or anger or, or generosity or forgiveness, repentance, marriage... Uh, humility, those teachings, come on Jesus, please don't meddle in my life too much. I I'm cool with the healings, with the miracles, but when, when, it starts to, when he starts to get to the heart, to my heart, that's where people tend to build up walls. That's one historical approach. We see that and it, 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 it creeps in throughout the church. They're, they're quick to embrace the charismatic miracle worker, but they reject the teacher, the, the author of life. 
On the other hand, there are those who love his teachings, who mine every word, every parable, every sermon. They dig it for every truth possible. But that charismatic social worker, the hocus pocus, you keep that over there, all right? Historically, when you look at the church, these are two great errors in approaching Jesus. And essentially, rejecting one of these aspects of Jesus is rejecting Jesus himself. So we have to be cautious as we look at Jesus to accept both aspects of his life and his ministry. Accepting just one is a rejection of the man himself. So we see this summary statement, then we, we come across the Sermon on the Mount. Then there's two chapters of the miracles, and then there's a summary statement at the end. A quick introduction on the... So this is going to be a long, awkward introduction, just to prepare your heart for. Okay, so the first introduction is Jesus. I got three separate introductions. This next introduction is the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, which is the context in which we find the Beatitudes. More will be said, I think, as we go throughout the series. My, my hope is that each week we'll come here and we'll understand a different aspect and appreciate something different about the Sermon, about the Beatitudes. Um, but first, in order to understand and get our minds around it, we have to set the scene and, and, and just make a couple of quick observations. At this point in his ministry, Jesus has, has caused quite a stir throughout Galilee. Healing the sick, speaking with authority, the crowds began to grow and began to grow and grow and grow. Jesus sees the opportunity. He takes advantage of it. He goes up on the mountain and he sits down. The crowds stop and they look as the disciples come and sit at his feet. The men who had just received and responded to his call. Remember, just a few verses earlier in chapter 4, we read this. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Until quite recently, these men who are now sitting at Jesus' feet, these men were a part of the crowds. They were a part of the crowds. What makes them different from the crowds is that Jesus called them out of the crowds. He, he chose them, he called them, and they responded and received his call. A simple message Jesus preached that they responded to. In verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They received the message. They came out of the crowds. It's a message that Jesus proclaimed some 2,000 years ago. That the same exact message that those men heard and received is the exact message that if we claim that same title as a disciple, we receive as well. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After calling a people to himself, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount begins to describe the righteousness that results from repentance. Another great error throughout the history of church is switching those around. Not understand what comes first, the cart or the horse. The righteousness results from repentance. These men received the message, they repented, and now he instructs them on the righteous way to live. That's exactly what he does throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's a description of what human life and human community look like after they come under the gracious rule of God, citizens of God's kingdom. How do we operate? Order matters. Righteousness that results 
from repentance. In many ways, as we consider what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount, this informs, even practically speaking, how we do worship service on a Sunday. The way we structure our service on a Sunday is, is very similar. And our intent should be similar as well. Jesus is giving specific instructions to those who have repented. This is what it looks like to be a kingdom citizen. To be in God's kingdom, this is what your life should look like. And as he instructs the disciples, the crowds build kind of the periphery of this mountainside sermon. And they listen in. ...on what Jesus instructs the disciples. His instruction is to the men who have repented. The crowds listen in and they hear. Very similar to what we even do on a Sunday morning. What our church is designed to do. Instruction for kingdom citizenry. How do we live in God's kingdom? Our prayer, our hope is that there are crowds... ...there are, there are people who have yet to receive this message... ...who would sit in our midst. Who would hear... The, the, the beauty of God's word and who would respond to the call much like the disciples did. But it's primarily for those who have already repented. It's primarily for those who have already repented. It informs the way that we even structure our service on a Sunday morning. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Now speaking of the Beatitudes specifically... The sermon begins with the disciples gathered at the feet of Jesus and with the crowds listening in. Jesus starts his sermon with these beatitudes. He begins by pronouncing a certain kind of person fortunate. If you wanted to replace the word blessed, you could replace it with the word maybe fortunate. How fortunate is the person who is? Fortunate would be a very similar word. It's basically, beatitude basically essentially is the Latin word for happiness or blessedness. How st strategic? Through the Beatitudes, Jesus addresses the topic constantly debated by the pagans of old. As John Calvin says, the principal question posed by philosophers was the nature and purpose of the sovereign good. What does it mean? Jesus captivates his audience by describing for them what exactly it means to live the good life. He describes for them the exact question that has been debated for centuries before him and has been debated for centuries after him. It is the question as a human people we ask ourselves. What does it mean to live the good life? There has been many who have debated over the years. Jesus provides the answer, the description of the good life. If there was a sermon series title... I had the liberty to give our series, which I don't because I think that happens at the other campus. But if there was, I would do Beatitudes, the good life. That's what it is. I think that was a colon that was in there. The Beatitudes, colon, the good life. Colon, right? That's right. Colon, the good life. That's what Jesus is getting at. Colon, thank you. The good life. That's what Jesus is getting at throughout the Beatitudes. He is describing for them what is the good life. What does it mean? What is the highest virtue you can live for? What does it mean to live the good life? Jesus answers it with the Beatitudes. A couple of just general lessons as we approach the Beatitudes. A few things I want to point out. These come largely from a man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a former physician and one of the greatest preachers um, in the, of the past century. Um, 
great lessons. For, he has a, a, a book. It's for me has been the most helpful resource I've read over the years about this sermon. A couple observations. First, these Beatitudes are for all Christians. All Christians are to be like this. I think oftentimes in our church and throughout the history of the church, we have divided Christians into maybe two different groups. There are those who are the exceptional Christians. Maybe like uh, Jerry, I don't know, or, you know, Dominique, you know, exceptional Christians, all right? And then there's the rest of us, the ordinary Christians, okay? There, there are those who are the, the, the clergy or the missionaries. Um, there are those who get paid to be especially pious. And then there's just your average us, okay? Two different groups. I mean, it is funny, but really, I think we all do that to some degree. I, I know I do that. Like, there's a picture of what it looks like to be an exceptionally faithful follower of Jesus. And, and, and sometimes I feel like, well, I'm over in this group. We divide it up. But, but Jesus is clear. These are characteristics that are for all of us. There are not two different groups of Christians. There is one group of Christians. There might be distinctions in offices and giftedness, but not in character. Not in character. The next general lesson is that these beatitudes are for all Christians. All Christians should possess all of these characteristics. Okay? We, we don't get the liberty of picking and choosing. Well, I'm especially humble. So poor in spirit, check that one off the list. But not as meek. Okay? Or I'm especially mournful. But... Uh, not as much of a peacemaker. I tend to, tend to stir things up, right? This is not the liberty that we have to pick and choose which ones we have. Now, some of us may have some natural tendencies, some towards ones and not the others, but these are all Christians, all Beatitudes. We should be able to examine our life and see places, maybe in some of them where we need to see some growth, but they should all be present in all of Christians. The next general lesson that we learn is that these Beatitudes are manifest in us. This is especially helpful, but not by us. And I think this has been a great error in approaching this text. Is that, is that these Beatitudes should be manifest, they should be produced in us, but not by us. They are a product of grace at work in us by means of the Holy Spirit. They are not a list of the works that we are to perform. Growing up um, on my grandparents' farm, my grandma used to always say, um, little Dougie, little, my dad was big Doug, so I was little Dougie, okay. Little Dougie, I don't want you to grow up to drink, smoke, chew, or date girls who do. That was the thing she would always say. <laughs> Whatever happens, don't you drink, smoke, chew, or date girls who do. That's what she would always say. And I think sometimes when we approach the Sermon on the Mount, you know, anyways, not going to get in there. When we approach the Sermon on the Mount, we approach it in a similar fashion. There's a list of things we do and we don't do. And that's our approach to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. The, the reality is these are a, a result of God's Spirit in us at work. They're not something we can strive, a checklist that we can check off and we can, I'm specifically going to work on this and, and specifically not going to work on that. We just try harder and harder and harder and harder and eventually we'll be poor in spirit. That's not what's going on here. This is the, the, the work of God's spirit alive in us. They are manifest in us, not by us. And the fourth um, thing I think that will be helpful for us is that these descriptions clearly indicate the difference between Christians and non-Christians. Our understanding of what, I mean, just the first beatitude that we'll talk about this morning. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, right? These beatitudes 
are an offense to the rest of the world. They're an offense to the rest of the world. They go completely opposite of what the world teaches is blessed, is fortunate. What the good life is that is painted here in these pages is radically different than the good life the world would have us believe and buy into. Radically different. Again, this is an area that we approach with caution. We see historically the church has erred. Um, I, I can think of just in the last you know, couple of decades, you think of like maybe the seeker-sensitive seeker movement, a movement that was designed ultimately to get lost people in the building of the church and proclaim God's news in, in a way that I think that happened in a really good way. And there were some really healthy ways that that would take place, but also some really unhealthy ways where pretty soon you would begin to dilute what was happening within the confines of the church. And as the world would creep into the church, the church would become just like the world. It was an attempt to, to win folks over. And I think that was an error. I think today, I mean, the word that you would maybe put that Christians feel a temptation, I know I do, is to be relevant, to be culturally relevant. And that's okay. We want to be relevant. We should not be irrelevant. But the way that translates is sometimes it means that we have to look exactly like the world. We should talk just like the world. We should be exactly where the world is. The Bible could not be more clear. The Beatitudes could not be clear. There are distinctions between Christians and non-Christians. Our hope as Christians is not to become more and more like the world. It's not to make the gospel, the message of the kingdom palatable by looking more like the world. Our hope, our, our, our purpose is to look more and more like Jesus. And he was radically different than the rest of the world. Now he, he ate with sinners, with tax collectors. He spent his time there. So I'm not saying that there's a line in the middle and you don't ever jump over. No, but when it comes to the way we build our lives, it is radically different. It is. And there's ways that we can, we can, we can approach culture, that we can speak into culture. Missionaries, this is a practice, and there, there's some fine lines here that they have learned and, and studied over the years of how this looks. I think of Hudson Taylor going, taking the gospel to China, and, and the story goes that he would, you know, the, the people there in China, I think they had, Wayne, you could totally correct me, but they had their whole head shaved, except for like maybe what part right here, there was a long, long ponytail, and Hudson Taylor had that haircut. And just, I can just imagine what he looked like. And that was absolutely okay to take the message there to look like the people to some degree. But I bet you if you were to scratch a little beneath the surface of his life, you would see a radically different person. Radically different person. Our ambition should be to be like Christ, not like those who don't know him. The glory of the gospel is when Christians live their lives by this book. They are different and invariably attract the world to it. That's the Beatitudes. So as we approach the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's essentially, and I'm going to go through this a little bit quicker, there's essentially three things I want us to see. I think this verse shows us. Um, first is the posture when we're thinking about the good life. The first is the posture of the good life. The next is the prize of the good life. And then finally we'll look at the presentation of the good life. So first, the posture. The first beatitude is the key to everything that follows. And in it we find the posture of the good life. The posture is essentially poor in spirit. 
Not poor in the economic sense. Maybe some of us can amen that. We're feeling that especially. But that's not specifically what he's referring to is the, the amount of money that's in our bank account or not in our bank account. And Luke, he leaves off in spirit. It just says, blessed are the poor. And there are some that have taken that to mean physical, economic, poverty. But Jesus is clear. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When we think about what it means to be spiritually poor... There's two things it requires. The first is that we think rightly about ourselves, And the second is that we think rightly about God. You cannot understand, you cannot be spiritually poor unless you have a proper understanding of who you are and a proper understanding of who he is and can see the vast gulf that exists between the two. Apart from that, we don't stand a chance at understanding spiritual poverty. See, at the foundational level, being a Christian is to be fully aware of our limitations. The Christian rejects the spirit of the age, the spirit of self-reliance. I can remember sharing my faith with a guy when I was uh, RA in Hillcrest a couple years ago, a few years ago. And uh, there was a guy named Mark. And Mark was not a believer, grew up traditionally, culturally kind of Christian in the church, had some knowledge of the faith. And as we began to dialogue and, and, and I began to share my faith, you know, one of the questions I said, well, what's the holdup? Like, you know, what's the barrier? And his response, and you probably heard this before, his response was, well, I really see faith as a crutch. I see it as a crutch, right? He embraced the spirit of the age, the spirit of self-reliance, which is the air we breathe today. Self-reliance. And he said, you know, as a result of his accepting that, he looks at faith, the need to, to find something outside of you and to, and to depend on that thing as a complete offense to his ability, his education, his giftedness. The response that we should have when somebody says, I see faith as a crutch, should simply be, yes it is. It absolutely is. Is because we have a proper understanding of our lives, who we are. I think Luke um, chapter 18 gives a great, Jesus gives a great parable when he specifically sees this wrestling that people are having with a crutch. He also told this parable to some who wrestled in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I can do this. I can do that. I can do this. I, 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 I. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisee had a reliance on his ability, on his morality. The tax collector had a clear understanding of his sin. And his desperate need for atonement. Poverty of spirit is the absence of pride and self-reliance. A recognition that, there are nothing, that we are nothing in the presence of God. That we bring, all that we bring, the abilities, the gifts, the morality, education, accomplishments, the personality. All that we bring, as Paul would say, is dung. It's rubbish. We offer nothing good to God. 
I think of one, you know, just, there's a game we play here sometimes at the spot. Mike, could you grab that table and just bring it, like, right there for me? Thank you. Um, and it's, it's a pretty tacky game, and I thought about just playing it real quick, but I don't want to make anybody look like too bad of a loser when I destroy him, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> just kidding. That's just my competitive nature. Right? It's a sin if I'm repenting of that as well. So I want you to imagine the game we play sometimes at the spot is that we'll have like two buckets. Like you, I've got tables here just to help your imagination, okay? You still have to use your imagination. But just imagine there's a bucket, nothing on it on this table, and over here there's a bucket of water. And the game we'll play is essentially like a relay game. So we'll have four buckets, two down there, that will be empty, and two down here that would be full, and there'd be lines, and they'd have to transfer the, the water that's in the full bucket to the empty bucket, and then they'd have to hand it to the next person, the next person does, and the first empty bucket that is filled and full bucket that is empty, that's the team that wins. But the catch is we'll put some holes in the cup, and so as they go, water's pouring out. Okay, you get the idea, right? So imagine that I had on here a full cup of water, and over here a full bucket of water is an empty bucket of water. And I had Dominic come up, and Dominic had a cup. And at the bottom of the cup, there wasn't just holes in Dominic's cup, let's just say. There was no bottom in his cup. And so as Dominic, and he didn't realize it, so as he scooped in water from the bucket to transfer to the empty bucket and walked, he got about here and realized he didn't have any water left in the cup. So Dominic has a couple of options. What Dominic can do is Dominic could try really hard. Like, okay, I'm going to do it faster this time. Okay? No matter how hard he tries to scoop the water out of the bucket, the water won't come out of the bucket. There's no bottom in the cup. And so what people who don't understand, who reject poverty of spirit, who don't embody the poverty of spirit, look essentially like Dominic trying to get the water from here to there with a cup that has no bottom. It would be ridiculous. It would be foolish. What Dominic needs to do is get a new he needs to get a cup that has a bottom in it. That's what he needs to do. See, our need for God, our rejection of poverty of spirit is an embracing of our own ability. We need to understand, apart from God, we offer nothing. Everything we bring to the table is dung. Throughout the scriptures, you look at anybody that God used and called and worked through, you think of Gideon, you think of Moses, you think of uh, David, who am I? You think of Ruth, you think of Isaiah, have a vision of, he has a vision of God, his response is, I am a man of unclean lips. You could go into the New Testament, Peter, Paul, the obvious example is God himself, Jesus on this earth. Who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. They all displayed poverty in spirit. We need a new cup. We need a new cup. Poverty of spirit should describe all of us. Every single one of us. Not just the spiritual giants of the faith, of our heritage. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. Next we see is the prize, the prize of the good life. You get the posture of the good life, we need a new cup. Now the prize of the good life. Poor in spirit are the fortunate, they are blessed. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Our prize is his kingdom. This kingdom was what Jesus preached. Some hundred times, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, in the Gospels, he makes reference to it. So what is the kingdom of heaven? God's kingdom is Christ's rule. 
the sphere, the realm in which he is reigning. When, when Jesus proclaimed, what's interesting as you read the message that he preached in the New Testament, when he preached the gospel, the Bible says he preached the kingdom of heaven. Those two things were synonymous with each other. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. See, when we think of what is the gospel, can you define the gospel message apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus? This side of the cross and in, in, the, in the grave, you, you can't, you shouldn't. But Jesus did. He used the word gospel interchangeably with kingdom of heaven. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. He hasn't died risen from the dead yet, and he's proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, this is his message, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the message. A couple things we have to understand about his kingdom, that there is a present and not yet nature to his kingdom. When Jesus took on flesh and walked on earth, wherever he was present, the kingdom of God was there. He pushed back darkness. He, he spread his reign and rule as he walked throughout Galilee. He pushed back darkness. He, he proclaimed and presented the kingdom. Wherever he went, Christ is being manifest. The kingdom of God is there. It was there when he walked on the earth. The kingdom of God is present now in this moment. To all those who have submitted to the rule of Christ in their lives and in this world, it is accessible and available to all of us. Here and now. This is how Paul puts it in Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They are blessed. Currently blessed. Here and now. There is a blessing to be had by embracing our complete and utter reliance on God. A blessing now by being, recognizing our poverty, our inability to, to bring anything to God. He says we're blessed now. Right here and right now. But also the kingdom is not yet. The kingdom has, has come here. It is here. And it is not yet here. It is yet to be here. It will come when in full when Christ establishes his reign and rule over the, the entire earth. It will be present in a spiritual and physical way and all the things will be subject to it. Evil and Satan will be removed. His reign will cover all of earth and there will be no doubting because of our citizenship. So even as you look at the Beatitudes, what's different between the first Beatitude and the last Beatitude is, is blessed is the kingdom or blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then everything in between there is blessed for they shall. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And then the last beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the difference between the first beatitude and the last beatitude is that our blessing is now. It's present. Our poverty in spirit, and this is difficult to understand because what it's telling us is you don't have to wait to be fulfilled. You don't have to wait to be blessed. And, and, and sometimes, even in approaching this, it, it challenged me because I always thought in embracing of my poverty... 
is, is placing a hope in Jesus that he will give me his riches. And he will, but he does now. There is a blessedness that we are to experience here and now by embracing our spiritual poverty. There's likewise at the end, this one's even harder to understand, but we'll get to it in a couple of weeks. There is a blessedness here and now by being persecuted for our faith. Not necessarily one that we just put our hope in, but here and now. And so throughout the Beatitudes, you see the kingdom reality that it is present, it's a blessing now, and it's not yet. Those who mourn shall be comforted. There's a promise that one day you will mourn no more. It's the nature of the Beatitudes. And, and finally, we see the presentation of the good life. So we have the posture, poor in spirit. We have the prize, the kingdom of God, and the presentation. You have to skip down to verses 13 through 16 to see this. He says, when you embrace these Beatitudes, when you display these Beatitudes, when you allow God's spirit to work in your life and, and you live them out in the context of the world around you, the result, the effect, is you are salt and you are light. You are salt and you are light. When God's kingdom is put on display for the world to see, it draws people to it. It is so different than what the world has to offer. So completely and utterly different than what the world has to offer that, that many will be drawn to it. Many will lay hold of it. There will be many who reject it, but many will draw to it. It's not that we conform to the world, but the world looks in and sees how different we are and wants a piece of it. When we live this out, it's as if we simply pull the veil back for a moment and people see a glimpse of the beauty and the glory of his kingdom. The veil goes back. His kingdom is here and now and their desire is to enter in. That's what it comes down to. When we present his kingdom to the world, we become salt and we become light. We show it off. Now, as we go throughout the Beatitudes, there's a special thing that we have to know. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what God challenges, what Jesus challenges his people, is not to just be people who marvel at his teaching. Not to just say, wow, that is true, that is poetic, that is beautiful. But, but to be people who build our foundation of our lives on those truths. And so if we don't do that, if we don't step back, look in the mirror and examine our lives and see what foundation our life is built on, we will be walking in disobedience to our Lord's teaching. So that's the hope. That's the challenge. I think in our community groups, that's the question that we ask. Is, is what does poverty of spirit look like for me right now? When I go to work tomorrow morning, what does it look like for me to display poverty of spirit, to live it in community? Let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, we thank you for all you've given us. Lord, we thank you um, that you, Father, have done this amazing exchange that we learn about in 2 Corinthians, that by your grace you became poor. Though you were rich, yet for our sake you became poor. So that by 
uh, by your poverty, we might become rich, Father. Lord, we thank you that, that by living a life that exemplifies, that demonstrates the reality of your kingdom, Lord, that you transfer your inheritance to us, that you call us your sons and your daughters. Father, Lord, I thank you that by your poverty we are made rich, Lord. And I pray that you would allow us just the, the grace of being able to examine, to step back and see our lives and examine them and to see what areas are out of step, out of tune with your kingdom, Father. Give us the courage, the strength to make changes. Lord, I think ultimately that you've given us your spirit and we trust you to perform that work in us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.